Hello, and welcome back to the European Review of History podcast. My name is Dr. Ruby Rutter, and this is episode three of our Digital History series, where we're looking at how technology and digital innovation are influencing our understanding of the past and shaping our practice of history as a discipline. This episode is co-hosted by my European Review of History colleague, Professor Stephen Hodkinson, who will be leading the discussion with our guests, Dr. Rule Kunenendijk and Dr. Owen Rees, about how the internet is changing the way the public is engaging with ancient history and what the benefits and potential pitfalls of this can be. So, Rule and Owen, to start us off, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about your work? Maybe start with Rule? So thanks very much for having me on. Uh, my name is Rokun Nayandag. I'm an ancient historian. I teach at the University of Oxford. I work on Greek warfare in my own field, but also the historiography of Greek warfare, the way our understanding and scholarship of it have developed. Um, and in my spare time, I spend a lot of time talking about this kind of thing uh, online. So, for instance, I'm a very active member and moderator of the um, subreddit Ask Historians. But I also do numerous things like podcasts. I help uh, YouTubers write scripts. I've done a couple of interviews with them. Um, I've done these interviews with Insider where they ask uh, an expert to come in and, and comment on, on uh, fragments of movies and TV series and things like that, and commenting on the realism. Um, these kind of attempts to try and reach wider audiences and try to kind of get across why I, I, I love doing this and why I, I've spent so much time doing this. And uh, th thanks for having me as well. Uh, it's definitely a pleasure. Um, I'm Dr. Owen Rees. I am also an ancient historian. Um, I am currently a uh, ancient history lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. Um, and next year I start a, a Leave Hume Early Career Fellowship based at the University of Nottingham, looking at my actual um, research specialism, which is socio-military history. So sort of similar to Rule, um, I'm interested in how war and society influence and affect one another in the ancient world. Um, more relevant to the topic for today, um, I am a public historian. That's kind of uh, my bread and butter is why I love to do more than anything else. Um, I write uh, popular history books and currently writing a trade book um, as well, which looks at uh, the ancient global environment um, as just another avenue of um, spreading historical research to a wider public audience uh, online. I am the main founder and editor of badancient.com, which is a sort of a fact-checking website for claims about the ancient world, um, common claims, common misconceptions. Um, also, it's not all negative, also uh, amazing things that are actually true, um, and we can kind of clarify and verify for people as well. Aside from that, I do consulting. Um, I'm currently consulting on a TV series. Uh, historical consulting is um, another passion of mine. Um, uh, but just generally, I'm, I'm really fascinated with historical communication, um, especially with how it's having to change and has already changed online and in the social media platforms in particular. Well, thank you very much, Rule and Owen, for agreeing to come on this podcast. Before we start to delve further into how digital history is affecting the practice of ancient history, I'll briefly introduce myself to our listeners. I'm Professor Stephen Hodkinson. I'm Emeritus Professor of Ancient History at the University of Nottingham, and I'm an editorial committee member 
of the European Review of History. My personal research interests focus both on ancient Sparta and on how Sparta has been appropriated in modern times, including in the early 21st century and in the digital sphere. So I'm very much looking forward, Owen and Rule, to hearing your thoughts. I'd particularly like to ask you both about your online public engagement, especially about the two main fora in which you've engaged, Owen, the Bad Ancient website which you founded, and Rule, your role as moderator on Greek warfare for the Ask Historians subreddit. So as a starter question, could I ask you each, how did you get into these online engagements and how precisely do they work? Uh, well, um, Bad Ancient began as a, an experiment in the classroom. Um, I was teaching undergraduates. Um, I teach in a history department. Ancient history isn't like in a classic department elsewhere. It's not um, part of a, a broader education in the ancient world. So what I found was students were fascinated with these ancient stories, with these ancient histories, but couldn't connect it to anything else. Uh, they very much um, researched it and read about it in isolation. So I was trying to get them to see actually that, you know, there is a broader currency to the ancient history that they were reading about and that actually it was um, it was everywhere. It was all around them. So uh, it began there, you know, um, as a Twitter hashtag of all things. Um, and it became a sort of an online repository of teaching material. So anytime I saw anything um, or my students saw anything in the public sphere, whether it be I mean, at the time, our prime minister was Boris Johnson, so quite regularly um, classics was being referenced. In America at the time, Donald Trump was president, um, and there was a lot of talk of his impeachment, uh, which brought out um, a lot of comparisons with the Spartans. So, you know, it was everywhere, but also like outside of politics, we were seeing, um, you know, things like the Kardashians dressed up as Cleopatra. We had um, Rihanna um, doing a Vogue shoot as Medusa, you know, things like this. And it was, it wasn't just about like being snarky and, and being like, oh, everyone's getting it wrong. It was to actually see how ancient history is being consumed in the wider world and kind of go from there. It was going really well. And then COVID hit. Um, so as soon as lockdown came down, uh, I found that the bad ancient hashtag sort of took a new direction um, because it became almost a place for like-minded people to kind of talk about these things. And it became a lot more conversational rather than um, me literally creating almost a back catalog of things I could talk about to a class. And it grew from there. Um, I was approached by um, uh, Yosha Browers, who is a, an ancient um, archaeologist. He's a, a, fundamentally an archaeologist by training, um, but he's also a brilliant web designer. And he came to me with the idea we could turn this into a website. We could actually look at it in more of like a Snopes website kind of way of you know fact checking it. Because I think the engagement online was suggesting people wanted to know more. So I was throwing things up, but ultimately people will go, well, that's great, but what does it actually mean? You know, is it actually wrong? What does the evidence actually say? So that's where it, um, that's where it all got born. Um, and as a result, we have always run it as a user-generated forum. 
by which I mean we take questions from the public. This isn't academics deciding what the public should or shouldn't know. This is an attempt to let the public ask us the questions that are on their mind about these things they're already consuming. Um, so as you can see, a bit of a strategic drift from the classroom, um, but it's still, it's still, I still use it in both fora um, and it does still have its um, uses in both ends. Um, so that's the Bad Ancient Project. That was how it began. And that's the kind of uh, the vision in which it was born. Thank you. And Rua, how do you get into Ask Historians and, and how, how does that work? I mean, the, the short answer is it was recommended to me by a friend, but I suppose that's, <laughs> that, that's not very helpful. I mean, it's, it's not something that I think I consciously was looking for. It's not like I was very actively thinking, I want a new way to reach out to people about or to share the knowledge that I've built up. But I know this all happened um, shortly after I finished my PhD back in 2015. Um, somebody had previously already recommended this subreddit to me and I just ignored it like for years, but then later somebody else brought it up again. I thought, okay, I'll fine. I'll check it out. I'm not a Reddit user. I wasn't at the time. I don't have any other presence on this big website, um, which is what's known as a community aggregator. So they have sub forums called subreddits on any topic you can imagine. You can find like-minded people there because the site as an aggregator has a much larger community at large, has a much larger number of users than those who are just interested in that one thing that you're interested in. So that's how they find each other, essentially. Um, and so on that website, there are a number of different uh, subreddits dedicated to history. Um, there's just the basic history. There's Ask History, which is more informal than we are. And then there's Ask Historians. Um, there are a number of other ones, but we don't really have to get into the details of it. The point is that Ask Historians sets itself apart as being the one that encourages um, long-form responses that are informed by current scholarship. So the idea is that they are not casual, they are not for people to just kind of share whatever knowledge they may have, um, or to kind of discuss things even, to necessarily to be like, oh, well, this is what I know. If anybody else knows something, they can chip in. It's really meant to be a place where people can post a question, and that's all you can do. You have to post a question. You can't post like just a statement or an essay or something like that. Um, you post a question and then you have to wait for an expert to to come in and, and give you this long form answers. Um, and anything that isn't sort of recognized as as an informed answer that has sort of the 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 um the weight of scholarship or the weight of current understanding of the sources behind it, um it gets removed by the moderators. And it's a very heavy handed approach, which doesn't really seem to fit Reddit as a website, which is known as, you know, a cesspool of all kinds of, of horrible uh, sub communities, but also as a place where people just hang out and do casual, th casual things, you know, they joke around a lot, they have a lot of like memes that are born on Reddit and things like that. Um, this is kind of it runs counter to how this website works. Um, it's genuinely like not about having everybody be able to say whatever they want, but rather for everybody to be told to sit down and wait for somebody with an actual background or a wide reading in the subject, um, not necessarily a qualified historian, but somebody who clearly knows what they're talking about, um, to give an answer. And that drew me because it made me feel like this is where you actually, if you have the knowledge, you will be heard where a lot of other parts of online interaction, your you know, high effort informed response is going to be drowned out by a lot of you know, lower effort, but shorter and more easily accessible responses that people will read much more quickly. If you see a number of different responses to a question, I think my eye is also still instinctively drawn to the shortest one because then I'll be like, okay, here I don't have to spend a lot of time getting into it. So that's, that's my answer. 
And so in order to get quality answers, in order to go into the details, you have to suppress the other ones. <laughs> and that's something that Ask Historians practices. And I was drawn to that and I wanted to um, use that platform to be the one where I would get involved, where I would be like, okay, here is where I think it's going to be most worth my while to share the things that I've learned that led me to, to get a PhD. Um, and so I started doing that and pretty much straight away, um, apart from the rewards, the, the sense of like uh, the various reward systems that gives you a sense that, that, that you're doing it for a reason. Um, I was also drawn to the idea that they have um, categories of like approved users. They have this flair that they give to, that they attach to your username to say like, you have been recognized by the moderators as an expert in this field, um, which gives you again, another layer of sort of recognized authority, which means again, that your posts are more likely to be read um, more likely to be left up and therefore will actually reach their audience with the information that you have, that your confidence is like, this is what we know on the subject. So there are various mechanisms in that website that make it so that even though you're able to talk to a very large number of users, I mean, we're currently up to, not at the time, but we're currently up to 1.5 million users. Um, and you, but at the same time that they will um, give you the space to show like, I am, I have the expertise on this. I can tell you about this in detail. I will tell you about it to the level that we currently understand it rather than having these casual off the, you know, off the cuff kind of responses that may or may not be, um, be adequate. Um, so that kind of direct, the combination between large audience question response kind of model, but also, um, space for actual expertise to be to be heard. I thought that that's what really drew me to it. And following off on that, um, you've already both partly answered this question, but uh, it might be worth just focusing on it more precisely. Um, you're both operating in a way that starts with questions coming from the public rather than questions decided by the experts. Um, but then, um, both Bad Ancient and Ask Historians seems to then ensure that it's the experts that get the chance to um, uh, to respond to those questions. Um, you talked a bit about the benefits of, of both. Um, what about the challenges um, in, in operating both Bad Ancient and Ask Historians? Uh, Owen, would you like to, to start on that? Yeah, um, I suppose the first thing to understand is the internet has reversed the historical norm so history has a discipline has always been um expert centered so the expert decides um what to look at what to investigate based on uh the acknowledged expertise that they have that has been um given to them by a small group i.e academia um the internet and technology more generally has never ever been expert focused in any way it has always been user focused the very uh it is a central priority to pretty much all technology the focus is on the user itself so for history to survive in a digital environment it needed to make that change it has not yet successfully done that, I don't think. Um, but things like Arcus Historians and, dare I say, Bad Ancient, um, are attempting to. There are ways of doing it, but you're absolutely right. It does come with problems. So um, the easiest way to reverse it is to let the users themselves determine the content. 
Um, hence the questions. The questions allow you uh, allow the public to determine what content goes on. Um, and as a result, experts are kind of on their toes uh, because we get asked really interesting questions that I'd never thought of um, at all, uh, which has many benefits. Downsides. Um, one downside is most definitely um, the questions become limited because the people have an interest, but not a speciality. Um, so they can become quite repetitive questions or quite uh, one direct um, one dimensional questions. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It would be the exact same with me talking about anything else outside of my field. Yeah, uh, we don't have that depth. Um, in other areas. And so the questions we ask, while we might find very interesting, uh, can come with their limitations and uh, oversimplifications. So sometimes on Bad Ancient, we get asked a question that just isn't an appropriate question. So we've got to kind of reword it and go, how can I answer this question? Give them the content they want and they need, but actually make it a worthwhile um, endeavor for all involved. Um, and it's, it's not difficult um, as long as you keep the user central to your concerns. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is because of the removal of the expert uh, from the central focus, there is a sense that all opinions are equal, all knowledge is equal, and all participants are equal, which of course they are in a democratic system such as the internet was born to be. However, as I quite often say uh, to anyone who will listen, um, everyone's entitled to an opinion, but not all opinions are equal. Um, and this is where it is important for the experts in whatever field to step in, but not step in heavy handed. And that is the difficult part. Um, and that is where conflict inevitably occurs online. Um, when the public are asking questions in good faith, and are shot down by uh, basically a bit of a um, an over exuberant academic who's going, well, do you know this is all entirely wrong and based on 19th century racism? And you're like, that's a bit heavy for someone who just watched a documentary and was interested in what they heard. Um, so it is a different skill set. It's a skill set we're not to in um, academia, um, where you know we have peer review. It's very stringent. We're ex we expect to be ever so slightly abused in writing uh, by our reviewers, by our editors, and things like that. That is not the way the world works. So um, there are new skill sets that still need to be learned. Ultimately, in, in historical communication, that's what needs to be learned, um, and it is a difficult one, which we're all learning. Um, so yeah, for me. I would say that's one of the biggest problems we're facing at the moment with this. What would you say a rule regarding Ask Historians? Yeah, no, I completely agree with with Owen's points about the challenges of doing this kind of thing. I mean, similar to him, like what I really appreciate about this space is the opportunity to not um, treat the public as um kind of the receiver, the passive receivers of what you want to tell them. Like you, you don't just go out and say, here's my essay or here's my lecture and enjoy it. And if you don't, then too bad. It's really actually um, about trying to figure out what they want to know and to what extent your own expertise can connect to that in a useful way, you know, to what extent you can tell them something that they actually want to know, they're already wondering about. Um, but the problem with that form of user-generated um, material or, or, or territory is that it's very difficult for people without uh, an academic background in history 
to understand various aspects of what historians do and what history is. And this is a really big problem that they, you know, you can't blame them for it. This is just about, you know, what we have learned over years and years of studying in terms of how much there is out there and how what kind of questions you can ask and what kind of evidence is available to answer those questions. And so often one of the problems that we run into is that people want to know things that we simply don't know. Um, and that very often they can be almost, I don't really want to say entitled, but they can be very demanding about information to which the only answer is, well, we just don't have it. Like this is gone. You know, they, we, we can't answer the specific questions that you'd like to see answered because that information doesn't exist. And if you're a historian, you kind of learn to work around the things that, you know, are a waste of time because the evidence isn't there. But for a lot of these users, in order to respond to them properly, you kind of have to keep explaining like, no, this isn't possible. Alternatively, that they also don't ask about a lot of things that are, um, you know, on which information is available because their own interests are very narrowly shaped by the kinds of history that, you know, both school education and popular culture teaches them about, which is, you know, necessarily, but unfortunately, quite a narrow range of things. Um, people will, I mean, we're always complaining that the overwhelming majority of questions that we get on Ask Historians are going to be about Greeks, Romans, medieval Europe, um, America, the US, um, and, you know, the Cold War, World War II, Nazis, that kind of thing. Things that are almost always going to be part of the high school curriculum almost anywhere in the Western world, but that leave huge swathes of human history almost completely untouched. And a problem that we have a lot of the time, we try to encourage, you know, a broadening perception of history. We want people to know about more stuff than that. And so we're always trying to push and encourage and, and uh, highlight other parts of history, you know, more social, more economic or broader geographical scope. You know, let's talk about Africa. Let's talk about South America. Let's talk about marginalized parts of society rather than just emperors and armies. You know, all these kinds of things. Um, but the questions that we get on those points are often very few and very basic because people just don't have the information that they need in order to ask a good question, right? They, so they'll ask a very bad or a bad or rather a superficial or a simple question or something that is so broad that it cannot be answered by anybody who's an actual expert in it and so on. So you have a lot of problems with trying to even encourage that. And so even when we do get experts in Ask Historians who can do, for instance, the history of Polynesia or whatever else, um, they often end up drifting away because they don't get any questions. And so we end up constantly having to renew our pool of experts on more or less obvious topics while having this reliable core of people who do, you know, World War II and who just get a constant never ending stream of things to answer. Um, I'm lucky to be in that category, being, you know, an expert on Greek warfare, both pop culture and history. Most uh, school systems will touch on what I do at some level. Um, and obviously, nowadays, it's been very inspiring, both in um, YA literature and in computer games. So there is a lot for me to talk about. Um, but for a lot of experts in other fields, it's actually really difficult to get the kind of um, engagement, uh, to get the kind of interest that would keep them engaged in a website like this. Um, and so to some extent, that is a problem. And we always publicly like to say there are no stupid questions. You know, obviously we want people to feel no boundaries against what they can ask. We don't want them to feel like, oh, you know, maybe my question isn't good enough. We're very worried when people tell us that they're afraid their question is going to be removed. But in the back channels, there is a lot of chats about people asking questions that 
you know, as historians or historical enthusiasts, we just kind of sit there going, like, why did you ask it like this? Or why did you ask it about this particular thing? Or why do you want to know this in particular? Because the ways of thinking that produce those questions and the background knowledge that produce those questions are not the ones that we share as, as historians and historical experts. And a lot of people come to us with questions that we think are either totally trivial or, or very annoyingly phrased or that duplicate ways of thinking that we wish people had moved past already, just because that is the way that they've been introduced to those questions. And that is the way that they've been introduced to thinking about history. And that can be a real obstacle in, in terms of um, both the breadth of the material that we can offer, um, the kind of expertise that we can retain, and also the kind of, you know, the variation that keeps us engaged in this project, frankly. I mean, there's just a lot of things that we are made to talk about that we are done talking about to some extent. Um, so that mismatch is very real. And that, I think, is a very structural problem. Um, is there anything that could be said about this sort of misinterpretation and the way that the public understand historical sources? Um, I've come across people on Twitter or, you know, wherever talking about a source, maybe from a book they've read or a documentary, and they assume that because it exists that a certain theory is supported. Um, a good example would be the so-called helicopters and planes that are supposedly carved um, as hieroglyphs in an Egyptian temple and that this then supposedly provides evidence that the ancient Egyptians knew about or saw this kind of technology feeding into the whole ancient aliens idea when actually I think it's just where the stone was filled in, reused, recarved um, and as the plaster or whatever they used to fill the carving has fallen away it's coincidentally created these shapes that we recognise as aircraft but are just you know arbitrary shapes um, but you need that baseline understanding to analyse a source or object and situate it within its context and then cross-reference it in order to come to a historical argument. You know, you can't just say, oh, this letter from so-and-so says that they did this and then this and this and, well, that must be the truth uh, without being able to back it up elsewhere. And I wonder if this disconnect, if, if you think there is a disconnect, is where people like Graham Hancock can enter and give exciting answers that are perhaps based on that knee-jerk, it's an ancient helicopter reaction, um, and skip out the boring analysis of the material components of plaster used by ancient Egyptians throughout different dynasties, um, and just provide this entertaining and attractive version of history. So... I suppose what I'm asking after all that is, um, is there an issue with how historians communicate what they actually do and the processes that they follow to build their arguments and the, uh, the way that sources have to be handled? Yeah, this is a huge question. I mean, there's a lot of complex layers to that, which I could speak to. I guess I don't really want to hog the, <laughs> hog the runtime here. Not you, Rob. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there's, I mean... Firstly, I mean, I think on as historians, because there are several mechanisms that reinforce um, the authority of the expert, even though obviously, you know, having an argument devolve into an argument from authority, well, I know I've read the scholarship is not a good look and nobody really responds to that very well. But I think the ability to explain in more detail why, for instance, a certain source doesn't work 
Um, it's something that we get asked to do a lot, and it's something that a lot of us do really well. And in particular narratives, for instance, we just have these standard responses that we just have to pull out and throw out onto this website every now and then. And we just have them, you know, we have pre-written replies for certain questions because certain reframings of history because they come up so often. Um, so, for instance, when people start talking about the lost cause, you know, the, the American Civil War, or when people start talking about the history of anti-Semitism, or when people start talking about like all sorts of questions, you know, the, 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 the genocide of Native Americans, questions that are on people's minds a lot in which the widely held narrative often has problems with it or in which the Internet is a hotbed of, of misdirection and, and deliberate uh, misinformation. These are subjects where we just have these responses ready. And most of the time they get a good response because people come to these things not out of or a lot of the time, not out of malice, but out of a genuine sense that they've been made to doubt what they know and they want the reassurance that you know from an expert that oh this is this is actually what it's like and and that's all you need to know mm -hmm. um so to some extent i think that's ask historians is a reasonably successful platform for addressing these kind of situations and so the problem that we see is more often that people come to us with questions that derive not from an understanding of history at all but rather from an understanding of history that comes out of the way it's been modeled in video games for instance we get a lot of questions that are literally or indirectly derived from the way that history is presented in the civilization games or the Hearts of Iron games or the uh, Europa, Europa Universalis games or whatever these are called. I mean, there are different series of games that model history in a particular way, like right now, Victoria 3 is a big thing. And that lead to a lot of questions that are essentially not about history, but about checking whether the way that the history has been modeled is accurate or not or whether the way that history has been modeled in those games can be reapplied to history. Um, and those are very different and difficult questions where we often get quite annoyed with users in the sense that we, this is not history, this is just you playing a game, please stop using this as a history lesson. But people will do this and people can't help doing that because it's framed that way, um, because they believe, whether consciously or unconsciously, that they're learning something about history by playing this way it's been modeled, playing out the way it's been modeled in these games. Um, so that kind of thing leads to a lot of these misconceptions, I think, more than people finding their own sort of random source and saying, I question the narrative now. Um, but in all of those cases, we can we can usually quite fruitfully engage with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think the bigger question comes in when it comes to um, to serious attempts to um, replace the historical narrative with something different, which is, I think, what, what Graham Hancock is trying to do. I think Owen can speak to that more in more detail. Yeah, the I'm intrigued by what Rule's been saying. Sorry, I'm supposed to be able to be interviewed, but I found that fascinating. Um, the first thing that kind of jumped out at me with all with your with your question was, um, and it's actually been a thread uh, that Rule's been talking about a little bit, which is sometimes you've got to spend your time thinking, how have they come to the question? To even start to answer it, how how have they even started? How have they even got to the point of asking this question? So um, rules work obviously sees more um, pop culture come through than really mine. Mine's more um, documentaries, books, things like that. Is it true? I remember learning this at school. Those sort of um, elements. But even then, the amount of times I've sent out a question to be answered by an expert for Bad Ancient, um, and I've had to say I have no idea where this has come from. So. If you don't know, I advise you to go find out before you could even answer it. Classic example is currently being written at the moment, which was we had a, a query come in, which was, um, is it true the Romans did make it to America? 
That's the question. Um, I don't even know if it's a valid question. I have no idea where it came from. I have no idea where that question came from. Um, I did a quick It's usually study. the Egyptians, actually. It's this usually the a... Phoenicians. Specifically, uh, it's the Phoenicians. <laughs> no, no, um, it's, it's the Egyptians in the, um, in the Afrocentric. Um, ah, okay. Yep. Um, there's allegedly um, Punic writing in um, the, one of the Southern American states. I forget which. So there, there are lots of these sort of pseudo-historical claims. Um, the Roman one really did throw me. Because, um, like rule, Egypt wouldn't have been a shock. Um, I remember there was claim there was someone who, um, re, who basically built an Egyptian-style boat and tried to sail across the Atlantic to prove that this could happen. You know, things like that. It's been tested for years. Um, so the Roman one threw me. So yeah, you know, we've always got to kind of think of um, you've got to meet the question from where it's coming from rather than just jump down, we know this is ludicrous. Well, you know, think, well, what's actually the evidence that they think they've seen? Going back to your question, Ruby, you know, the actual evidence they think they've seen or been shown um, and look at it from there. Um, and they are, I think uh, people are becoming more and more, to, they're aware that history is built on evidence, but they're not necessarily trained in how to examine that evidence. So sometimes they'll just discount evidence because they don't like it or don't want it, or other times they'll believe it because it's the evidence, and it's that's kind of their their approach to it. Um, a good example of this was um, Rule and I did a couple of years ago uh, a tweetathon to coincide with the anniversary of Thermopylae hmm. Marathon or. No, it's Thermopylae. It was Thermopylae, yeah. Yeah, it was Thermopylae. So we did lots of different Twitter threads over a series of days that looked at the Battle of Thermopylae itself. It looked at Spartan culture. It looked at Persian culture, all these different threads. Um, it was quite volatile um, at times. But one of the things that really struck me was the amount of people who disagreed with us. That wasn't surprising. But what was surprising was the amount of people that disagreed with us who went, read Herodotus, who, if you know anything about the Persian Wars, he, he is pretty much our source. Um, so the very idea that like you haven't read Herodotus and you're like, no, I have read Herodotus. Like, where do you think we've got all this from? I, if I haven't got it from Herodotus, I'm kind of making it up. <laughs> um, so uh, don't get me wrong. There are other bits of evidence, but ultimately Herodotus is your man. And it's just interesting. They go, you need to read Herodotus. And it's the idea that I need to go away, read Herodotus word for word. And then I will understand that there is a set narrative that is right. And, um, not all um, historical consumers are like this, of course, but it is a common thread. Which, you know, um, I've read this source. Going back to your idea of the letter, you know, this letter says this. You don't think of it as an item in isolation. You think of it as fact because someone has said it. But actually, if you talk to people, if you actually talk to people about these things and you equate it to things they understand, you know, if you equate it to the one I throw at my students is, you know, you go, you go on a night out with some friends, you go drinking and uh, you leave, but all your friends end up in an argument. And then all you're getting is all the different friends telling you what happened. Uh, no one believes that one person's telling them the truth in that situation. But when it comes to history, we suddenly, we do. So there is that. Um, but yeah, I think you're also right. There is a sense of sensationalism, but also a clear narrative. One of the things people like Graham Hancock offer is a clear narrative. Um, it's only when you start to pluck at the threads, does it fall apart? But if you actually just read it at face value, it is a clear narrative that explains, going back to Rawls' point, questions that people want to answers to, to which there are not answers. Hmm. Um, and it's why it's successful, because they offer a nice, clear narrative in that way. Um, also, it's a bit like um, stage magic. 
So one of the things um, many stage magicians say is you don't want to know how it's done because it's boring or it's a bit disappointing or it's a bit upsetting. Um, I've had one recently, a bit of a personal anecdote. I've had one recently with a family history issue um, in which uh, there is a long-standing story about a great, great aunt and uncle, of my, well, aunt of mine who never married. Um, but a, there's allegedly an illicit love story. We're, we're talking mid 1800s. There's an illicit love story where basically a very religious family wouldn't let her out of the house to engage with potentially a boyfriend. We're not, we're not 100% sure, but there's a letter. There's a letter in the family archives, if you want to call the garage that. In the family archives, there was a letter in which it basically is, it's a, it's a breakup letter. You know, it's, oh, um, we can't be together. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. And it goes on for like, uh, two sides of a letter. Um, but if you read every second line, it is actually a devoted love letter. So it's that kind of cryptic uh, way of communicating. And this is the great love story of my family history. It's amazing, but um, the woman never realized because she never actually ran away with him as he was requesting. And this is how it's always been told. And it's beautiful. I made the mistake of Googling it and discovered uh, it's a novelty piece you could buy in the 1850s, um, the exact letter. So a foundational story of my Irish family history um, is ultimately a gag, but we don't know who bought it, why, when, or how. Um, you know, it may well still have been this person sending it to my great, great, great aunt or whatever she is. Uh, it could well be that, but he did not write it. <laughs> It is, it is a gag letter. Um, so, you know, you can imagine how the very few members of my family I've let know that reacted because um, it just kills romance. It kills a narrative. It kills, it kills an identity. And I think that's the thing that historians often wade in too hard with and they don't realize what they're playing with. We're not playing with knowledge. If it was just knowledge, we wouldn't have anywhere near the... Um, flack we get as experts online we're not we're challenging identities we're challenging uh, people's ways of understanding themselves and the world around them um and if you go in heavy-handed i've said this more than once today if you go in heavy-handed the anger that comes back isn't because they feel stupid because they don't um, it is because you've challenged something quite intrinsic to their understanding, either themselves or the world around them or their family or their identity or their culture, whatever it is. Um, that is what you have actually challenged. And if you've done that in a very aggressive way or in a very dismissive way, you need to be aware of that. I mean, this ties into what the response that we got to those Twitter threads a few years ago, because we got this exact thing, which I wanted to raise one of the challenges of doing this kind of public history and trying to reach people where they are is that when you present people with the academic version of narrative history or, or the history that they already are already passionate about, you are also directly engaging with non-academic versions of that history, which can be very important or much more important to people's identity. For instance, national myth, which we ran into on both sides of that question. Yes. Um, so these are versions of that historical narrative which are different from the academic version, not necessarily even because people believe it's more true, but because it's more fitting, it's more suitable to its end. And so you end up engaging with that and, and treading on that to some extent, because they can't coexist, you know, not in the same space, you can't have, you know, 
a Greek nationalist's version of the Battle of Thermopylae next to the current scholarly understanding of the Battle of Thermopylae, because these things are mutually exclusive in innumerable ways. And so having to engage with that is one of the problems. I mean, you run into ways that people have used history that may be much more important to them than anything like historical reality or the truth or as close as we can get to it, because they are about identity, exactly as, as Owen says. They are about something that people feel about themselves that they connect to, um, which, I mean, it, it just goes to show that history is much more than, you know, a prostitute of information. It is a, a tool, you know, people use it for a purpose a lot of the time. Um, and there is no such thing as a form of history that can exist separate from those from those uh, uh, instrumentalization um, that you can just have and we can agree on and then we can build on it. I mean, that that doesn't exist. And I think it's one of the things that we run into and in ask historians as well is that people do believe that it might exist and come to us asking questions where they very explicitly say like, oh, I've read this account, I've read that account, they're totally irreconcilable. Give me the unbiased, pure, you know, pure information, pure fact version of history. And we have to go and tell them like, I'm sorry, but that it just doesn't exist. Like that cannot be done. And as historians, we've been trained to know that there is no unbiased source and that there is no unbiased narrative. There are just you know, arguably better or worse ways of compiling and understanding the evidence. But for the most part, we are interpreting and reinterpreting based on our own knowledge and our own sense of how the world works. And I think a lot of people find that very unsatisfactory because they want historians to be giving them the facts. And that's just not what we do. No. Um, and so both if you are not looking for it, if you're looking to reinforce your national self-narrative, for instance, uh, what we do can be unwelcome. But also, if you're trying to cut through that, what we do can be unwelcome, because we just refuse to give you the objective truth, because, we, you know, we've been through this for so long, we no longer believe it exists. And it's hard to explain that to people. It's hard to, um, it's hard to explain to people that even though we devote our lives to figuring out more things about the past, we don't believe that we are coming closer to the truth, I think, the singular truth. Um, not at least in the way that they understand it. Yeah, I think it also ties in with um, the growth of scientism. So the idea, basically the idea that the only method to explain anything is the scientific method. So it breeds this idea of there is a fact, there is a truth, and anyth anything that includes interpretation is political agenda. This is something we're particularly dealing with now. Um, but the critique has always been there, not necessarily the political agenda element, but this idea of, well, why can't you just give me the facts? We're seeing this a lot in the UK about discussion of national curriculum and the history curriculum and what history is told and why can't they just tell us the facts? This is often also part of the debate of what's going on with the National Trust. These are big public history areas of consideration. And um, if you meet it in a debate but if you think you're in a debate as an academic, you're, you're, you're wrong. You're actually in a debate about this, which is there is a fact. Anything you're adding to it is unnecessary. Um, and it comes back to, uh, Ruby, your original question, which is actually, what do the public think history and historical sources actually are? Um, people do think history is a series of facts. And to be fair to them, that's exactly what they were taught at school. It's dates, it's names. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you start saying things like, well, actually, I mean, Rule, for instance, his uh, research specialist in historiography, you tell uh, even well-read, educated people who uh, didn't study history, but like it, 
you tell them you do historiography, they'll tell you you're doing nonsense. That's because that's not history. No. And you want to go, well, actually, it's the history of it's literally the history of history uh, in rules case. Um, you know, reception studies, uh, something um, myself and um, Professor Hawkinson do. Uh, again, you tell people you do that, they're like, that's not history. Um, so there is a real disconnect between what historians do and what the public think history is. They do believe it is a series of facts. They they acknowledge that there is sources. They acknowledge those sources might contradict each other. But as Rule says, the questions we're getting tell us exactly how the public consider history. And that is that it's a series of facts and a, and a, a true narrative should be able to be reconstructed. Um, which is also why um, public debate on this at the moment is obsessed with the word revisionism. Mm-hmm. revisionism to anyone else is um, you're now changing a narrative to suit an agenda. Why are you changing what we know to be true? That's how it's being perceived. It's, it's wrong. We know it's wrong, but we are so, at this point in time, we are so bad at communicating what it is we do as a discipline. Um, no one believes us. And when you go, actually, any time a historian does work in history, they are revising what we know. That is the point of it. You know, even popular history, they are attempting to give a new slant. They are attempting to give a new narrative. That is a revision on what we know. And revision is good. It doesn't matter who's doing it. As long as it's done with a good intent, it is a positive. You can do something with it. Um, but the discourse is against us. Revisionism is bad. Any change is therefore bad. Um, and that's kind of where we are at at this point. Um, the last thing I think we also need to kind of consider with um, online history is also it is impacting the way we are consuming it as well so this is the final element so anyone who wants to know about history doesn't need an expert they can just google it and we as experts often say that quite dismissively but it is also kind of where we start (laughs) yeah we obviously then go down our rabbit holes of course we do and we'll end up in the archives and stuff but we can you know let's not pretend we do not use the same search engines as most other people we will use um certain things behind paywalls but you know google is our friend google scholar google books these are all publicly available um what things like bad ancient ask historians um and well uh, curated wikipedia pages do is ironically remove the need for the expert in people's need to uh, absorb new information. So if you are interested in a topic and you want um, good detail, you can go to a uh, Ask Historian thread and see a great um, piece of work and you're happy. That's it. Um, And whilst the expert has had the input in writing the first thing, it doesn't necessarily, we hope, but it doesn't necessarily encourage them to go and uh, find more information on it. Because ultimately, people are going to the internet for an answer. Going back to Raw's point, you're often attracted to the small paragraph. I am. I haven't got the attention span for uh, long pages. Um, I just want that snapshot. And I've got the snapshot. Now, if I go to somewhere like um, Ask Historians, I can trust that snapshot. Bad Ancient, I hope, you know, uh, we have people like uh, Professor Hawkinson writing on it. So you have an expert writing on a particular topic and he offers a snapshot. He could write books. Um, he might even be writing books, come to think of it, on what he has written an article about on my website. But he did it in only 1,500 words. And, you know, that's, that's consumable. If you don't want to read the 1,500 words, you've got the actual answer 
uh, we have a, um, a rating system. So you can literally go, I it was, uh, is Sparta a communist state? I believe it's a question. Um, and, you know, literally that question. And then the answer, false, no. <laughs> so if you don't even want to read it, you don't have to. You've got an answer from a site you either do or don't trust. Or conversely, you can go down to the conclusion. You know, there are ways you can consume it without reading all of it. Um, and uh, so the consumption of history online is also changing uh, as well. Um, and I don't think we've necessarily got a proper conversation going about whether or not we're helping it, directing it. Are we actually involved in it as much as we could be? Are we too involved in it? Is it working? You know, there's lots of conversations that still need to happen on these kind of uh, discussions. And uh, what uh, what would you have to say, Rule, about how you think uh, the internet has changed the, uh, the public consumption of history? Because one of the problems you were talking about earlier um, were deficiencies of the school curriculum or Graham Hancock's works, which uh, were disseminated you know, by traditional media. What what new has the uh, internet brought? What new uh, challenges and problems? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think what we run into, and you know, on Reddit in particular, you are sharing a space technically, you're sharing a, a server place with things like history memes, which is its own subreddit. Um, and that is a very good expression of the idea of history as entertainment in the same way that almost anything else can be, you know, a repository of jokes and in-jokes in and references. Um, so the transformation of the kind of things that we would learn from our school days or from, you know, pop history books and, and from, from pseudo-historical works like Graham Hancock, um, to transform that into a repository of, because it's common knowledge, we can make jokes about it. We can refer to the things that we all know, and we can turn those into meme formats and snippets and 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 uh, reference jokes and things like that, um, which are are good for entertainment. Um, and I think that's something the internet has really done across all social media platforms is that it has turned these uh, it's turned our common our shared historical knowledge or our understanding of it as it comes through pop culture and games and things like that um into a set of um of these sort of easily consumable chunks of, of entertainment you know memes jokes uh shit posts all these kinds of different things that people um that people share among each other and, and can share very rapidly and consume very rapidly um and in a sense that's a form of engagement with history if you want to be generous but the problem is that it like all jokes relies on what the common ground is and so it heavily reinforces and continually reinforces a common set of knowledge about history which is very often you know not at all in line with what academics are saying and you can't turn what academics are saying in this into the same kind of joke material because a you lack that common ground you have to convince people first that they actually do know or understand it the same way you do and secondly, a lot of this stuff is much too complex to turn it into something simple and easily consumable. And so you're kind of dealing with a tertiary or quartiary market, if you will, of history information being shared around um, at a level that you cannot influence until you've already influenced all the previous stages of the process. Mm. Um, and that is something that we really have to deal with. I mean, that's something that is, is you know, out, completely out of control all over the Internet. Um, very widely done because, of course, you know, it's funny, it's amusing, it's great. You know, you can talk about the kind of, you can joke about the kind of things that we all know. We all share, you know, jokes about 
you know, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, because we've all seen these movies. And similarly, you can make jokes about, I don't know, the Roman Empire or World War II, because we've all learned about these things in school. Um, but that is, you know, it constantly relies on existing pre-existing ideas. It constantly relies on reinforcing that all you already know is all you need to know because it's all you need to know to get the joke. Yeah, I mean, in terms of comedy, I'm thinking about uh, Pope's The Dunciad or, you know, even recent comedies like uh, Channel 4's Plebs um, that obviously suggest there's a cultural need throughout the centuries to engage with classical themes to better understand contemporary culture or, you know, poke fun at contemporary culture. Um, so I suppose there's a study in itself there on, you know, society's need throughout history to refer back to antiquity, to frame and interpret the modern world. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. There's a few things there, isn't there? I mean, one of them is um, classics, uh, the, the study of the ancient world through the original languages, Latin, Greek. Um, has been a hallmark of elite education. And as a result, if you're making classics jokes, you're creating an in-joke to people who have had a similar education to you. There is a reason why, uh, you know, our former prime minister, Boris Johnson, was making so many classical references. Um, there is also a reason why Liz Truss attempted to make one on her resignation speech. Um, and actually, many, uh, she, unfortunately, she messed up her lines. No, it must have been a very stressful moment for her anyway. Um, I think she was referencing Seneca or Juvenal, someone along those lines. Um, and a lot of uh, ancient historians, uh, public ancient historians, sort of made light of it and sort of made jokes about it and commented on it. But the one thing that no one really commented on is now we've had two prime ministers purposely reference the ancient world as they resign. Um, are we seeing a trend in politics, an old trend, really, come back, um, which is this idea of in-group, you know, um, you're reaffirming that kind of elite um, positionality. Um, the other thing with the ancient world that I think the Internet has particularly brought to the fore is the ancient world as an aesthetic. So one of the other ways people consume history is as uh, ultimately a beautiful place. Um, whether it nostalgic, so the black and white photos, or whether it with the ancient world, you'll often see um, on Instagram is probably the most prominent because of its visual aspect above all else, um, is where you'll see people have, uh, they'll put things up on the hashtag history, hashtag ancient Egypt, things like that. But what you'll see is a half shaded image of a stele or, you know, an inscription that you can barely read. And the um, the actual comment box has no real information about it at all, but it gets thousands and thousands and thousands of interactions because it's beautiful. And often this is how people want to think about the ancient world. So there are so many other elements of this. So when you, if you as a historian are coming in and talking about kind of a nitty gritty, nasty ancient Athens, for instance, whereas a lot of people see ancient Athens as this beautiful white. Uh, gleaming marble, much like they visualize Rome, um, and you're kind of soiling that image. You are, uh, it's again, it's another form of consumption of history that we, you know, we, we just haven't considered, haven't considered at all. Um, so uh, in that respect, um, the, there are various currencies to the ancient world in the modern. 
And the assumption that everyone is using it in the same way for the same reasons is just wrong. It's completely wrong. Um, when a prime minister is referencing uh, the ancient world, they're doing it for a different reason than why a photographer is or why a teenager is or why a computer gamer is. You know, they're, they're using it for different reasons to elicit different things. Um, and I think we have to kind of, uh, maybe sensitive might be the wrong word, but aware of it. And I wonder whether we can move the discussion um, onto more explicitly political uh, appropriations or misappropriations of ancient history uh, in online spaces. Um, in your areas of research, there are two particular topics that have played significant roles in recent political debates. Um, the first is ancient Greek warfare, um, where the character of Greek warfare, its alleged focus on decisive battles has been claimed as, as a prototype of a, a so-called Western way of war uh, in supposed contrast to non-Western forms of warfare, um, an idea especially popular among neoconservative pundits in the USA. Um, could you say something a bit about this particular appropriation and how effective historians might be able to challenge it, particularly uh, online? Yeah, so I, I do want to say that the so when I when I started going into postgraduate study in this field, the, the whole debate around the Western way of war was still very much alive, but that is now a while ago. Um, I don't really want to put a number to this because I'm going to feel very old. But um, the thing is, like this this narrative was exactly as you say, uh, Steve, this was something from the neocon era, from the Bush era, essentially, when it was most influential. Uh, but the model was launched with uh, Victor Hansen's Western Way of War in 1989. And so nowadays, I think the people that I interact with online in social media spaces are not going to be the types that have been entirely convinced by this, but rather the types whose dads have been convinced by this. And in that sense, there is less adherence to it nowadays. I think there are much fewer um, adherents of some kind of idea of a timeless um, form of Western warfare now than there were 10, 15, 20 years ago. And in fact, a lot of the books that, you know, every now and then somebody like, I don't know, a Barry Strauss or somebody will still publish a book that heavily invokes this idea that, you know, civilization was saved on the battlefield of Marathon or Salamis or something um, because we, we saved our Western values and traditions against the Persian hordes and all this kind of nonsense. Um, but this is, you know, this is the kind of book that's aimed at the, the military history crowd that, um, you know, pushes uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly's books to the to the bestseller list. I mean, the kind of crowd that is slightly older, that has an established interest in military history of all periods, and that is to some extent doing this as a hobby, not as a, as a political ideology, so to speak, or perhaps as, a, as, a, as a, a segment of a political ideology that has very different focal points, especially now that Obviously, the, the the political movement, especially on the right in the US, has moved on from neoconservatism in many ways. And so um, we, without trying to sort of put any specific labels on that, I think that's not something that I encounter so much these days. Um, what you do still see as a sort of vestige of that in when you're talking about Greek warfare is an understanding of Greek warfare as the heroic close hand-to-hand -hand combat of hoplites. Um, you know, heavily armored warriors who are fighting in discipline formation, um, with the Spartans being sort of the quintessential example, especially since uh, the movie 300 came out um, at the height of this neoconservative narrative of Western way of war in 2006. 
Um, and that image, I think, still does persist. The idea that the Greeks were at some level better at warfare in a way that later gets adopted by other civilizations that are deemed to be more advanced, such as Rome. Um, and the idea of them being better than their barbarian opponents, better than the Persians, better than uh, than other peoples they encounter, because their way of fighting is a more courageous, it's about hand-to-hand -hand fighting and facing the spears in close combat, um, and be more disciplined and more organized. So it's more mechanical. It's more like um, like a, a well-oiled machine of a professional military, as we also see in depictions of warfare and other periods and other traditions, in which we're usually made to believe that the more advanced and more sophisticated society is the one that fights in a more disciplined way. I mean, Lord of the Rings is a great example of this, where the elves are the most sophisticated people, but also in combat are, you know, behave the most mechanically, uh, at least in the original series. I think in The Hobbit, they kind of spread that around a little bit. But the idea is that, that there is an association between civilizational achievement or advancement, whatever that may mean, uh, and military discipline and effectiveness, um, which obviously I think, you know, you could trace that back easily to the Victorian period and the idea of the thin red line and that sort of thing. Um, but fundamentally, that is something that we see projected onto the ancient world and that I'm still having to, you know, go up against when I'm talking about the Greeks and point out like, look, these guys were, you know, amateur militias. They were called up from their farms on, you know, three days before the fight. Um, they received no training. They had very limited organization, very limited martial skill. Um, there was no emphasis in Greek society on uh, developing martial skill. Military professionalism was rare and hard to come by and contested as a concept. A lot of people didn't believe that it was that it could really exist. And so you have to kind of try to, to debunk this narrative in which the Greeks are inherently because of the way they fight um, uh, better or more effective or more advanced um, than other ancient peoples. So I think that is very much a, a hangover of that Western warfare narrative where it's no longer so explicitly linked to uh, later traditions of European warfare, um, but that, that image, that impression still exists. Yeah. I, was, I was just thinking on, on this particular topic, you've got... Um turning right back to one of Ruby's uh, earlier questions on source material, ultimately to a lot of people who do want to think this of um, Greek warfare, you could read Thucydides and get the impression. Like that's it's perfectly easy to do, especially if you've gone in with the kind of mindset, this is probably how it is. You read Thucydides and go, yeah, that is how it is. I've now read the primary evidence or I've read an important primary source um, that clarifies that. Um, and Kind of uh, one of the interesting things, I don't know about Ask Historians itself, but I know Reddit, the, the bulk of Reddit users are under 30. So it's interesting that, you know, Rule's rightly trying to identify it's coming through 300. It's not actually coming through Victor Davis Hansen anymore, but he has obviously influenced the next element that is now influencing. Now, in the classroom, I'm starting to notice 300 is becoming less and less of a relevant reference. So it's becoming gaming. But of course, 300 has become the aesthetic basis to pretty much all ancient Greek games. So you can see how these are building. So a historian will notice this goes back to Victor David Hansen, and it may well go back even further to the you know, sort of 19th century, as, as Rules work very much points out. Um, but to the public, it's, it's I just played, you know, Rome Total War. That was it. And it presents this. Um, 
we do see this and uh, we often have this issue with uh, material and evidence. So uh, the other one that the 300 very much throws up is the idea that the Spartans throw babies off cliffs um, to get rid of disabilities. Fundamentally how it's kind of told, the imperfect baby is killed. Um, the problem, it's not a problem. I mean, we dealt with it on our website because ultimately the evidence for it is very, very suspicious. Um, and most up-to-date Spartan scholarship seems to, I wouldn't say dismiss it, but is very critical of this as really systematically happening at a state level in Sparta during the classical period. Um, however, there is a primary source that categorically tells us that they did this and how they did this. Um, so one of the difficulties uh, for the historian, as we've kind of talked about time and again, is uh, the process by which we go about trying to understand the ancient world. You have a primary source. Why are you dismissing it? Um, and you write books to explain, ultimately, to explain why you're dismissing some evidence and not other evidence. Um, but to an outsider, that's just cherry picking. And ultimately, isn't that what we accuse uh, pseudo-historians are doing, just cherry-picking the evidence that fits what they want? Um, so you've got to understand from a, uh, a non-specialist perspective, from a non-insider perspective, what actually is the difference? Um, and in an environment we now live in where the expert in anything is highly open to criticism, you know, was it Michael Gove famously said the public has had enough of experts? Um, that was a dangerous moment and i don't think he's been proven wrong to be perfectly frank um i think he is wrong <laughs> in that um but ultimately since that point we have seen more and more experts become dismissed uh whether it be medical experts whether it be historical experts whatever it is um, and people trust what they see more than what they listen to from other expertise um What's particularly interesting about Reddit, what's particularly, uh, we don't have it with Bad Ancient because it's not a social media platform, um, but we see it on TikTok, we see it on Instagram, which is the consumption of history from a younger generation and how they're dealing with it and how they're consuming it. And one of the things we haven't really talked about today, um, but is also true in Ask Historians, but it's hidden in their kind of upvoting and uh, things like that, is there is a sense of not so much virality in, in Ask Historians, but in a sense of um, you are rewarded for content. There is a sense and things get pushed up the algorithm as a result. We see this really in places like um, TikTok, uh, Twitter, where um, interactions uh, governs what goes to the top of your feed before anything else. Hmm. So the virality of history is becoming a currency in its own right. This is why um, Jason Steinhauer, uh, who wrote uh, History Disrupted, fantastic book, which looks at um, history online fundamentally and how, how uh, the interaction with social media is changing history itself and the way history is talked about. Um, he, taught, he spends a long time talking about this and he, dubs, he sort of dubs uh, this new form of history as e-history. And you've got to think of history now as sound bites, um, small passages, but ultimately virality. The way to get virality on different platforms is governed by different things. If you want to be viral in Twitter, you need to be argumentative. You need not just debate, you need anger. That will make it go viral. Whether it's anger against you or anger on your behalf, doesn't matter, that will go viral. Instagram, it's got to be aesthetic because of the nature of the platform. 
Uh, TikTok, there's a lot of research going on at the moment as to how things um, get pushed up the uh, algorithms on TikTok um, and just how AI driven TikTok is as a platform. I mean, there's uh, research going on about, you know, facial expressions and things like this. There are real concerns about um, TikTok. It's not just TikTok. All social media has its problems. But again, TikTok's algorithm, Instagram's algorithm, Facebook's algorithms change the way history is being pushed in those various platforms. So even now, you know, we come in as historians. Well, yeah, we are historians. We understand historians in certain platforms. Do you understand them in all of them? No, we, we need to collaborate to kind of understand these better um, and hopefully get a better understanding of how it is consumed. Um, ask historians, I hope, uh, obviously we'll be pushing up things with um, upvotes which are based on good content. I mean, I should probably explain this, this system. I mean, the thing is because users post questions and we don't necessarily control which questions rise at the top, that is entirely user generated through this upvote and downvote system that exists on Reddit. So if people find a question, see a question, they find it interesting, they can upvote it. Um, we use a script to disable the downvote button on our front page because we don't want people oh. to downvote questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they can still do it if they know how to how to undo that script layer, right. uh, which is very easy, unfortunately. Um, and so the users say which questions become popular. And this in itself obviously influences the content because, I mean, we have fairly good statistics on this. The average question has about a 40% chance of being answered, maybe slightly less, which is not something we're happy about, but we can't really do very much except force people to write answers. Um, but if your question rises to the top, it has a more than 90% chance of being answered. So the questions that become popular also get are much more likely to get an answer, partly because more people see it, partly because it looks very good for us. So we kind of tend to push like harder for people to write an answer because this is something that, you know, gets a lot of attention uh, to our subreddit. Um, but also partly because there's just a lot more reward in writing those answers than uh, writing answers to threads that only 10, 20 people will see. And so when you get a question that rises to the top, I mean, tens of thousands of people are seeing that in their feed, hundreds of thousands, possibly. Um, if it becomes very popular, uh, that's 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 not a rare number. Um, and so you want those people to recognize your contribution. And so you're much more likely to write that answer. Um, but that is that is a very distorting element because yes, a lot of questions that rise to the top are, from our perspective, either not that interesting or in fact, deeply frustrating. Like a lot of it is very puerile. For instance, if you write anything that has to do with sex or you know, with the kind of the sort of puerile interest that you kind of don't really think about when you think about history, people are like, hey, hey that's funny, let's upvote that. Which is again, something that you, you can think of as, as being um, you know, a form of e-history, which is this like an excitement with, um, with basic little sort of chunks of information that you could, you, you just feel like a little bit cheeky for knowing. Um, or they can be things that are deliberately, you know, um, uh, countercultural or unexpected. Sometimes really interesting questions rise to the top just because they make people go, huh, I never thought about that. I really want to know the answer now. Um, no relation, again, to whether that answer is conceivable or possible, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that is entirely user generated. And that is something that we, you know, we try to influence it to some extent, for instance, by giving certain questions, the great question flair to try and get more people to see it, um, trying to sort of encourage it by our own upvotes and downvotes as a moderation team. 
Um, but for the most part, this is just something that we have no control over. We just are, we are at the mercy of our users determining what questions they really want to know the answer to. Um, and a lot of the time, yeah, that, that again has nothing to do with what historians actually do. Anything related to pop culture is always a hit. You know, people want to know, especially if it's the history behind pop culture. So for instance, was it possible for the characters of this particular sitcom in this particular time to live in that house? You know, a house on that size. Talk about socioeconomic factors that make this lifestyle possible. Is that realistic? These kind of questions do phenomenally well, you know, but also, for instance, when I posted um, an AMA, so basically just ask me anything. Yeah, I'm an expert in this field. And when um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey came out, I'm just like, I'm an expert on the Peloponnesian War and warfare in that period. Ask me anything. That was the most popular AMA we ever had, because you can just say in the title, this is to do with that game you're all playing. Ask me questions. <laughs> that kind of thing is just really, really um, uh, distorting. Um, in, in your answer to my question about uh, the controversies over the nature of Greek warfare, um, you've moved on to the second topic that I was going to raise, the question of Sparta. and. Uh, um, so I think I'll, I'll adapt my question a bit. Um, um, like like Owen, I, 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 I'm finding that the impact of the film 300, uh, which first came out in 2006, is now beginning to wane. Uh, I gave a, a lecture recently at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and only 10 to 15 percent of my audience have actually seen uh, uh, 300. Um, and I'd agree, it's moving now on to video games as, as being the main influence among young persons. Um, but if I can approach the Sparta question from another angle, um, a lot of the appropriations during the 2010s have been highly toxic um, by you know, far-right groups uh, uh, globally, um, and particularly in the USA. Um, I want to ask a question about, given the toxic nature of some of the groups that propagate these kind of misappropriations, do you have any thoughts about how historians can do so safely online without suffering the kind of abuse that, that often results from online engagement with very politically charged subjects? It's a very difficult question, and I think I am to some extent insulated from the consequence of talking about Sparta online by various factors. I mean, one of them is my identity. Um, there is, and I always want to stress this, I mean, it is much easier for me as a white man who teaches at Oxford to talk about anything um, than it is uh, for many other people, you know, from, from minorities, um, women, uh, marginalized identities, et cetera, et cetera, um, will always receive a lot more pushback on anything they say. And so to some extent, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely privileged and that insulates me from the kind of blowback that a lot of other people get. The other thing is that being on Ask Historians, you're on a platform that deliberately will silence people if they come and, and, and engage with us in bad faith. Because A, we have no time for that, and B, we know it drives people away, um, not just from marginalized groups, which is very well attested. I mean, people don't want to be part of communities where they might be, end up being bullied or attacked for their identity. Um, but secondly, um, because people don't want to you know, waste their time writing content for people who are not engaging in good faith. And so we remove that stuff. You know, if, if we figure out or if, if somebody is explicit about which they often are, um, explicit about wanting to uh, push an agenda or wanting to uh, recruit people for particular uh, forms of extremism, then we can just shut that down immediately. 
And so I encounter that kind of stuff much more in other spaces. For instance, when we engage on Twitter, um, you get many more people who are very wedded to a particular interpretation of ancient Sparta because it feeds into their political ideology. But I think this instrumentalization becomes very detached from history. I mean, we don't really get any questions on Ask Historians based on um, the idea of Sparta being somehow an ideal state or an ideal value system or representing an ideal value system or anything like that. Um, if anything, we get people saying, this is what I've heard, but is that actually true? Um, so they're already interrogating that model. So I think it really is in other ways that the, the, these people are engaging with something that becomes very sort of many steps removed from the actual history. And I think to some extent they do so consciously. Yeah, because I was thinking um, ultimately people who have such a strong affiliation with Sparta don't have any questions about it because they've got their answers. It's just that those answers aren't historically accurate in any way, but that doesn't bother them. Or that it doesn't even compute, wouldn't even compute that these things might even be wrong. So what, what, why would you interact with Ask Historians? Why would you interact with Bad, bad Ancient? What, you, what I generally find is those people are confronted with Bad Ancient by other people. So one of the things Bad Ancient um, has always tried to do is offer the opportunity of anonymity to writers if they felt the need to. So originally, Bad Ancient was set up entirely anonymous and we just had lists of contributors. That was always the plan, um, specifically for this reason, um, because in anonymity, all they can really get angry at is the website itself. And the website itself doesn't really exist. So you can just get angry at that. I don't I don't really care um, in in sort of a. Rule might have to jump in and correct me slightly on this, but with Ask Historians, you have pseudonyms. Um, and I don't know about Ask Historians itself, but I know Reddit has a real concern over um, doxing of moderators. Mm. So the idea that um, the real identity of its moderators is, is found out and it's a real threat on a lot of Reddit threads that, you know, you will be doxed if you don't basically conform to what we want. Um, so the idea of anonymity does give you protection, but also opens you up to revelation um, and being unveiled um, and the dangers there therein. I mean, there was um, uh, there are stories of other moderators on other Reddit sites of having to move house as a result of these um, basically online attacks. Um, so there are real dangers. Twitter, I'm not anonymous at all, so that's me. Um, my advice to that is always the same. Um, I did it purposely with Rule with our Tweetathon thing that we did a couple of years ago because we knew it was going to be volatile. Um, and it's the same advice they should give in all horror films. You don't go down to the basement on your own. You, if you're going to go into something you know is volatile, if you're going to talk about um, Sparta on a public platform, do not go alone. Um, because it's going to be horrible. And I completely agree with Rule. It was horrible for us, and we are two white male academics. Like, um, add any form of uh, minority or marginalized group into that thread, and it would have exploded exponentially. Um, and it was bad enough the week we did it. Um, but ultimately, what it allowed us to do, as um, you know, I've known Rule for many years, um, whilst we were creating these threads whilst we were interacting with various people, both in good faith and being accused of being in the pocket of Erdogan, um, we were constantly in communication. 
constantly in communication um, and checking in. So, you know, sometimes we're checking a goal. Like, oh, you want to answer this question? I'll grab that one. But other times you're like, are you okay? Is everything all right? You know, because um, it does have a lasting impact and it is it is nasty and it is volatile um, and that is a reality. So um, what you'll find is a lot of these platforms, Bad Ancient, Ask Stories, offer anonymity as a way of kind of doing that. I think ultimately you're not going to actually impact the group who are appropriating Sparta. What you're more likely to do is to um, help an inquisitive mind who might have gone that way. So this is rules, um, you know, they come to you going, I've heard this, is that right? That's the person. And I think a lot of what we need to understand is who is our target audience? And if you think your target audience is the far right group or far left group who are um, so sold on the idea of Sparta being something, um, I think you're deluded. Um, however, if you have a set target group, the, the kind of unexpected person who falls into these um I think it's, rabbit holes. It, Go on, it's important to recognize that i mean th these far-right groups i mean they don't organize on reddit anymore right they used to but now they've moved on to other sites so they're on parlor or truth social yeah. or aidkun or whatever else they are um in their own bubbles um and so when you're on social media you're not talking to them you are on their recruitment grounds and it is a opportunity for you to disrupt their recruitment that's what you're doing by providing within these spaces something that disproves their narrative and that is easily available and has a lot of views and has a lot of endorsement in the sense of um, clicks, likes, whatever, um, uh, and you know references that people make to it later and, and links that people provide to it later, um, you have an opportunity to disrupt their attempts to essentially steer people towards their way of looking at it. And I think that's how you need to recognize you'll never you know, de-radicalize anyone by saying, actually, Sparta wasn't like that, because it's only one fragment of an entire worldview um, that, you know, that 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 has many other pillars to rest upon. Um, but rather, you might say, oh, well, if somebody is trying to be lured into this level of radicalism by being convinced of a certain way of talk, talking about the past, a way of interpreting ancient Sparta, or a way of, you know, just a language of talking about themselves in these sort of terms that they that they associate with Sparta, um, then you can actually, um, you can prevent that from happening, or at least at some, in some level, slow it down. And this is why I think, I mean, it's not just Ask Historians, you also see on Reddit, um, you know, many, many references to Brett Devereaux's blog on Sparta, which also has been, I think, very helpful in changing the way that people talk about it, so that at least that avenue of, of rhetoric and that avenue of, of right-wing propaganda becomes less and less available, because you're adding to the common knowledge, because you're adding to the, the widespread understanding of what history was actually like and that that disarms um uh, malicious narratives i think i think it's important uh what rules saying there about how it is even if you correct a misconception it is a tiny element of their entire worldview i see this most clearly when you deal with fake quotes so fake quotes are a massive currency online um you know with memes and you know uh, health and well-being blogs and all that kind of thing where they obsess over things and they uh, basically they end up with something they believe and then they attach either a, a, an acceptedly cultural wise person for health it'll be someone like hippocrates the supposed first medical 
X, Y, and Z of the ancient world, um, or uh, you know, Plato, Socrates, you know, people like this. They just pick someone who's who's wise, and everyone accepts is wise, um, or they just throw it as far into the past as they can. And the idea being that they've known this for thousands of years, so it must be true. And then when you confront that and you go, well, actually, this quote doesn't exist in the ancient world at all. I have no idea where you got this from. Um, you'll be met with one of two reactions. One is, oh, that's interesting. I'll stop saying it. <laughs> or I'll stop using Socrates or Thucydides or, you know, uh, Neville Morley has a bot that follows um, Thucydides quotes around the internet doing this. You know? And it actually, it's, it's a good uh, model to follow. Because um, you see these reactions, which is, go, oh, I didn't realize Thucydides didn't say that. I'll stop. I'll stop referencing it. Or you get the other reaction, which were, which is basically, yeah, but it's still right. It's still true. Even if Thucydides didn't say it, even if Plato didn't say it, it's still right. So what's the matter? Yes, I, I, I have a similar, uh, a similar reaction um, regarding whether King Leonidas at Thermopylae really did say. Mullen and Levy uh, come and take them. And one blogger I came across said, well, if Andes didn't say that, uh, his actions really, really did. Um, well, th thank you very much, uh, uh, Onan Rule. This has been a really informative and highly stimulating uh, uh, discussion. Um, um, uh, Ruby, do you want to uh, add anything just to finish the, the, the outro to this episode? Yeah, thank you so much. I echo um, Stephen's sentiments. Um, would you like to just sort of round round the conversation off by letting the listeners know where they can access your sites or might be able to engage with your work um, online? Yes, yeah, so uh, Bad Ancient is on badancient.com. Um, you can uh, have a look at the articles written there. You can also submit your own questions if people are interested or just want to have a, a nose. Um, my main presence really is on Twitter. Uh, Reese History is me there. Um, that's where you'll find a lot of um, bad ancients uh, kind of being discussed as a public history platform. Um, so if you are more interested in um, similar projects or how to engage in that that's often where you'll find me discussing those things or conversely bad ancient has its own um twitter page as well which is much more about the public facing side of that yeah as historians is i mean obviously it's on reddit so it's reddit.com slash r slash historians but you can also just search for askhistorians.com um it will have a link to uh to the actual uh subreddit and you can follow us on twitter where we share basically um questions that have been answered and, and answers that we like so we, there's a daily feed of of different parts of history where we um where we just share the best answers that we get um that's just ask historians at ask historians on twitter um for as long as that lasts and you can find me on there as well for the, <laughs> for the foreseeable future anyway great thank you so much um i will leave all the relevant links to websites articles um social media handles in the show notes along with more information about the journal and where you can follow us on social media so thank you for listening to this episode of the european review of history podcast and i hope you join us again soon Bye bye <laughs>